Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This podcast is part of a mini-series co-hosted with Susie Allegre, International Human Rights Barrister, Associate at Doughty Street Chambers and Research Fellow at the University of Roehampton. And we're really grateful for the Office of the OSCE Representative on Freedom of Media for a grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression project to support this series. Each of the episodes in this mini-series are about some implication of these extremely interesting but fast-moving developments in artificial intelligence, algorithms, social media have on our rights. Today, we're grateful to be joined by Brendan DeCare. He is the Executive Director of PEN Canada, the Freedom of Expression organisation. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and the law within a framework of social justice. And if you want to find show notes or support the podcast with a few pounds a month to help make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Yeah, so we've seen a, a lot of shifts in the last 20 years in the way that we interact with information, but obviously books have continued to thrive in their paperback and hardback forms, as we can see around you there today. Um, but how has artificial intelligence affected the publishing process and, and, the, and also the creative process for writers, and particularly on decisions about how writing is valued and how we decide what is, what is worth publishing? Well, I think the simplest answer to that is we simply don't know because algorithms operate out of public view. So they affect writing in ways that are very hard to measure. Uh, but there is one example of how profoundly they can influence the way we, we gather and think about information uh, that was mentioned last year. I was at the Penn uh, Literary Festival in, in New York and the novelist Dave Eggers had just been working on a project in which he wrote the essays for high school um, history exams uh, because these were being graded by an algorithm and he wanted to see how well he would fare. He published 15 books, he's a professional writer. And uh, he was rather disappointed that he, it took him, I think, uh, six or eight or eight or 10 goes to get the maximum mark on these essays. And these are short, uh, essays that will determine your mark on an exam that sends you to university. So he then asked a data scientist to do this, and the data scientist was able to get the top mark uh, within two or three goes, which shows that the way the algorithms are grading the material can be gamed quite quickly by somebody who knows how that works. But then Eggers didn't stop there, and he actually got... Uh, a group of uh, Pulitzer Prize winning historians to do the same thing and they didn't fare much better than he did. So I think that's a pretty good example of how dangerous it is to hand over the judging of writing to an obscure process because whatever it was grading as the top result clearly was not what we would uh, consider a significant piece of writing. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And do you think is, is that your algorithms being used in the in the publishing process, as far as you're you're aware? Well, they 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 are being used in competitions that judge literary merit. So uh, we, for example, met with an e-publishing uh, platform in Toronto about a year ago, and they had a competition with 104,000 submissions. So before they could even get to the stage where a human was judging, an algorithm read it. Now, who on earth is in a position to determine uh, what, how that algorithm arrives at what is you know, compelling fiction? It certainly that- lies beyond the, the powers of anyone I know in, in publishing, but that's what's determining it. Yeah, well, I suppose it's that, that kind of really flags up the problem, though, doesn't it? Is that when you're overwhelmed with information, you've got to find some way to actually be able to manage those kind of quantities of, of, of submissions that, that you're dealing with. Yeah, well, I, I think that the, um, the way to think about this is that publishing and the cultural gatekeepers that we became uh, accustomed to having operated at a certain scale and a certain speed. And algorithms and social media platforms operate at a completely different scale and speed. And we are still, uh, what, 20 years on, trying to synchronize those two processes. But we've handed over so much of our journalism and culture to the um, care of these algorithms that it may not be a, a straightforward thing to regain control. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you about news feeds um, and, and particularly the fact, the way that we experience news and culture is increasingly curated for us by algorithms. Um, so for example, the news feed on Facebook or Twitter serves you up a mixture of what it thinks you'll engage with, but also mixed in with what companies or political parties or basically whoever pays the money will, um, you know, want you to be um, shown as well. Do you think that that artificial intelligence and that curation of news and culture is having an impact or can have an impact on the creative process of writers? Well, it, it, it clearly does. Uh, in a number of ways. I would go with uh, culture first. Um, I hope I get the pronunciation correct. William Derisowicz has written a book recently called The Death of the Artist. And he talks about the cultural landscape in the age of social media. It is looking constantly for material that can land in the way a blockbuster used to land in, in a, a season of cinema. And if you recall in the early 1970s, there was a period of extreme creativity in Hollywood. There were a bunch of auteurs and then suddenly blockbusters became a part of the way studios thought. And social media platforms and the algorithmic curation of culture has very much pushed us towards this constant sensationalism. And the research points out that if you look at publishing, the mid-list, the mid-list authors used to publish every three to five years and then Mm -hmm. use the proceeds of that uh, book 
to mull over their material. So there, there was this slow, deliberative production of culture. And once you start shifting away, as publishing has done increasingly, towards sensational stuff, then you end up with uh, you know, self-help books, diets. Algorithms are there to determine how long a user stays on a device. So they naturally select for material that is sensational. And that has pushed the direction of the culture in, uh, in particular ways. So William Derisowicz has written a book called The Death of the Artist, in which he looks at the impact that the platforms have had on production of culture, not just uh, books, but music and art. And it has impelled them towards much more instantaneous and striking material. And he suggests that this interrupts an older pattern of culture formation in which people would publish a book and using the proceeds from that book, spend another two or three years mulling over the material. So you're removing a, a huge section of mid-list deliberative culture when everyone is competing for attention on these platforms, which is increasingly the case. And how does that work as well when you're when you start talking about even competing with AI itself? So we keep on hearing about, you know, AI that's able to produce content or AI that's you know able to to reproduce, well, legal judgments or you know, philosophical ideas. Um, but again, from certainly from what I've seen, that's quite limited within the scope of what it produces. And it produces this kind of formulaic um formulaic material of the kind that you're talking about that effectively is sort of polarizing and, and engaging in that kind of way. But how do you think the development of, of content creating AI is going to impact on writers and, and human creativity? Well, again, I go back to this point about it all happening in a black box. So we know it has uh, huge impacts. The, the simple way to think of it is that the Every day, about a billion hours of YouTube are watched, and the AI is pushing 700 million of those hours. Uh, on Facebook, the numbers are even more striking. So it's uh, 1.5 billion hours, and 1.2 billion hours of video, of content, is being pushed by the algorithm. That's an astonishing fraction when you consider uh, how we used to gather, curate, and disperse culture. So uh, the, the, the simple answer is we don't know <laughs> how it, it pushes this stuff, but we do know that it is optimized for time and, de uh, time and device. And time and device is a low hanging fruit if you go after divisive and fearful messages, because it's very hard to pull yourself away. And this is why I think the centrality of characters like Trump and Duterte on, on the medium because they're the natural they're natural provocateurs. So you're handing over the delivery system for news and culture to a platform that has a bias towards this sort of content. I think that's really the issue. The Better Human Podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting. I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month 
That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. And that also raises the the question of how people respond to you on social media as well. So it's not only about what you write. And I know that from my perspective, sort of as a female human rights lawyer, I have to say I was very reticent to join Twitter um, because I was quite concerned about what I might have to deal with um, on social media in this kind of space. And when you look at things like social media pylons, where large numbers of people sort of very quickly move in as a group to attack someone for something they've said online or troll farms as well, where you're looking at um, a group of users who are being employed to attack people or even AI that's being driven um, to create content that sort of replicates an attack en masse. What kind of impact do you think those phenomena, the pylons and and troll farms have on diversity of expression, particularly when you're talking about women or minorities or people sort of with political dissenting opinions. How do you think they're impacted? Well, I think that's the heart of the matter. We did a study recently of how the platforms have affected journalism in Mexico, the Philippines. We were looking at the UK and Canada. And at root, the problem is this. These platforms were devised by fairly prosperous white male Silicon Valley types who are not used to fighting uh, to defend their cultural space. So when you hand it over and you scale it um, to the level these platforms have done, uh, they're completely incapable of protecting a user from a pylon. And they, it, that's just the design issue, because if they'd been thinking that way from the start, they would have developed all the tools. So people have had to improvise tools to delist people who come at you on Twitter and share that information with others. But uh, the bottom line is that you've got a system that's very easy to game. So in Mexico, for example, there are people who uh, troll farms that will meet and use certain hashtags every day to go after critical journalists. So the amount of time you spend fending off those attacks is time not spent uh, reporting the public interest or taking up something that matters. And it gets much worse um, in places like India, in Russia, um, in Iran. So uh, the, the scariest thing of having a black box system that determines how this traffic moves is that you have no way of measuring the extent of the silence it is imposing. Um, there's, there's this wonderful anecdote um, when Donald Trump went to visit uh, Saudi Arabia, where one of his, um, I think it was Commerce Secretary's aide, was uh, accompanying them around uh, the capital, and he said, you know, this is a wonderful place. There's everywhere we've gone, it's been completely quiet. There's no protest at all. And I thought, well, <laughs> the, the, the naivety of uh, the Americans who've designed these systems is quite astonishing. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting how when you hear, or certainly in places like the UK, when you talk about or you hear of people talking about freedom of expression in the sort of social media space, it's very much more often that they're talking about freedom of expression of the attacker, if you like, of the sort of the content that is going after someone rather than the freedom of expression of the person who's being attacked or the people who are potentially being silenced by that kind of activity. I, and I don't think there's any awareness of the severity of these attacks. So we just had a wonderful piece written for us by Priyam Vadagopal, who's a, an academic at Cambridge of Indian origin. And she wrote a very moderate tweet uh, about a year ago uh, that said, um, all lives matter, it was about the black lives matter, white lives matter, or all lives matter debate. And she did said, white lives don't matter per se, uh, making a point about context, which seemed to me such a, a, a narrow and well-made point that you can't imagine it drawing the fire that it did. But uh, hundreds of people wrote to her. Uh, she collected some of them and, and actually shared the, the, the Google Drive. And what's terrifying is not just the the volume of racism and xenophobia a single line can elicit, but the fact that it goes all the way down so that she was getting emails from people who identified themselves saying what she should do, where she should go, how thankful she should be. And then people were trying to get her fired from her position. And this is over a single line. Now, most male journalists simply cannot imagine operating in a space like that. So this is why you always have to imagine the worst case scenarios, because for women and minorities, they're living it. But for, you know, well-established white male journalists, they always seem surprised when these things come up. Do you think, I mean, social media is, as, as we all know, is this, um, you know, incredibly complex and, all pervasive medium where on the one hand journalists and people who who write generally have, have been given a platform to be able to write in front of audiences they could never have reached without a publisher previously so on on, on that level there is an enormous benefit um and particularly in terms of exposure in terms of the proliferation of unheard voices in terms of just not being, you know, the, the, the lack of control that large institutions have over what's going on there, which is a, you know, it's a positive and a negative. And it comes with this flip side of, well, I, I suppose part of it is the, is the way it's monetized. The social media is relies on these algorithms that encourage people to be outrageous and, you know, and, and make, um, you know, offensive comments are 24 hours of entertainment for, in a way, on these networks because lots of people pile in and you have your favourite people attacking each other and, you know, saying extra, incre increasingly extravagant things. What it's, it's very hard now that the genie's out of the bottle to imagine what that could look like that would be kinder and less open to um, manipulation by say a troll farm or, or a, um, an aggressive government, you know, or non-government or an, a government funded project. 
but do you have any sense of where where you'd want it to go what kind of reforms you'd like to see to make social media to maintain the good things um but also make it less of a um intimidating and threatening place for journalists and other um people expressing themselves freely well that that is the, the trillion dollar question at this stage isn't it quite literally um, uh, yes the um i'd say two things to that number one is that the the, the platforms can't throw their hands up and say, oh, well, it just sort of broke this way. We had no idea it was coming. Um, Jill Abramson, the former managing editor of the New York Times, wrote a book called Motions of Truth, and she followed the uh, BuzzFeed data analysis. And very early on, they began to go into extremely fine-grained um, profiles of their users, and they split them into 23 demographic profiles. And they discovered that the, the top producer in the sort of Pareto principle, the 80% of the traffic driven by this little slice of people, uh, the, a group that they defined as histrionic narcissists, because these were the perfect distributors of content. They reacted in all caps, screaming, flaming to everything. And they were uh, social media gold. So these are the people who reshape the grammar of the internet, you know, listicles and this thing, um, BuzzFeed. Uh, they, they literally uh, gave birth to the entire lexicon and stuff. So the platforms knew this from a long way back and they didn't alter the design to mitigate it. Yeah. Now, Tristan Harris, who was one of the uh, Google engineers who first flagged a lot of this. He's the producer of that documentary, The, um, the Social Dilemma. He was discussing um, some of the ways in which you could tweak the system to improve it. So if you started, for example, on Reddit, the, the sort of Reddit um, model, where you rewarded people for changing other people's minds instead of confirming you see, the algorithm is pushing you in the direction you already want to go. So uh, the, the obvious counter to that would be to incentivize people who engage you in the ways that the old public's very used to and change your mind. And that is something you can do. So I think that there are ways to do this. Um, and to, to the larger point, I think the great danger is that... Um, even with all its problems, the social platforms have brought into view the voices or, or uh, brought into public notice the voices of communities that were simply left out completely. So just uh, over the weekend, I was looking at TikTok, TikTok Live, and um, there was a girl with Tourette syndrome who was explaining what it's like to live with, with that. And she was being asked by a hundred different people. There was a evangelical pastor in the US who was pushing back against the pro-Trump pastors. Um, uh, she was talking about Christian extremism. Um, and now these are conversations you don't see on television, you don't read in the newspapers, but they are driving the political undercurrents 
that will determine the next 10 years, uh, as you know from Brexit, as, as we all know from Trump. So it, it's a very delicate thing to work out how you maintain engagement with those uh, forgotten demographic groups um, without leaning further into the algorithm. But I suppose I, I suppose sense. the kind of the question of, of changing minds instead of the confirmation bias is also quite double-edged uh, because the idea that you're going to go and change people's minds, there's a sort of underlying question of that is how are you changing their minds? And is well, that indeed. necessarily a good thing? Um, yes. And so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be quite uh, cautious about the idea of just flipping the switch on confirmation bias versus changing minds. Well, yes, I mean, an ISIS recruiter changes minds too. So <laughs> you, you don't want to be incentivizing him, but... Um, it's definitely a better, I think the, one of the uh, design principles that uh, have guided the platforms from the start is frictionlessness. And frictionlessness is when you gloss over decisions um, because it helps you to stay on the device for a much longer time. And if you look at the traditional public sphere, I would argue that free speech is a friction. So if you have a platform that is minimizing friction it is by design uh, shielding you from things that change your mind. It, it, it's suppressing your awareness. Um, and a proper public sphere should be something that engages you and makes you think, oh, well, I didn't know that, or I'm not sure I agree with that. And we've lost that completely. I think as well, one of the other things that we've lost is, is also the filter when you talk about free speech and sort of that line between what's going on inside my head about what I think from minute to minute and what I decide I want to share with the world. And quite often in social media, you can land up really oversharing or sort of saying things on the spur of the moment that actually, if you were yes. thinking carefully, <laughs> you would probably reconsider whether that was something you really wanted to share. And in a way, it's sort of undermining that, that filter that we we have, which which protects our freedom to think for ourselves as well before sharing what we want to say. Yeah, it, it's this compulsive aspect of the medium. There's a, a wonderful book um, by Jenny Ophel called How to Do Nothing, um, resisting the compulsions of social media. And she drags up a quote from Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher, which I rather like. It's, it's quite, quite a long quote, but... Um, we're riddled with pointless talk, insane quantities of words and images. Stupidity is never blind or mute. So it's not a problem of getting people to express themselves, but of providing little gaps of solitude and silence in which they might eventually find something to say. Repressive forces don't stop people expressing themselves, but rather force them to express themselves. What a relief to have nothing to say, the right to say nothing because only then is there a chance of framing the rare and ever rarer thing that might be worth saying. That's rather beautifully on point, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Can, can we um, stay on the subject of saying stupid things on the internet? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to think, think, flip that around and say, just, just on, on the assumption that we all do, unfortunately say stupid things on the internet every now and then, somewhere on the internet, and that especially younger people who've grown up with social media leave a very, very big digital footprint these days. One which, um, you know, the, the three of us may, you know, mercifully not have any dig digital footprint before, you know, before we were adults. Um, but 
just want to think about um, the uh, the idea of digi digital strip searches, as they've been called, um, where a, an increasing number of authorities, employers, immigration authorities, border authorities are asking for access to our online activities so that they can see what well they can try they can try and see what kind of a person we are or what kind of things we may have done when we were um younger or even just may have done not that long ago um but in a private ish space of the internet that we thought wouldn't be assessed by some border official what do you think what impact do you think this has on freedom of expression well i think that behind the answer to that is this other question of communities because Facebook, Twitter, all the, all the big um, platforms talk about community guidelines. Um, there is no community guideline for a transnational corporation with 2 billion people. So if there were community guidelines and safeguards, then there'd be one rule. So if you were confident that you could not be stopped by your border guards and they could ask, force you to log in and look at your social media history, then we'd all be on the same platform. But of course, they abdicate responsibility on, on all of that because they want to remain in certain territories and to sort of arbitrage the opportunities that they have. Um, this is not a problem that uh, is limited to social media platforms. Uh, one of the pen cases in China, I think this goes all the way back to 2007, Shi Tao. He was a writer who communicated with... Uh, a website outside of China about the suppression of protests on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And Yahoo um, gave information that turned him into the authorities. Now, they would never dream of doing that in America because the lawsuit that would arise from it would probably sink the company. But when they made that calculation in China, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. They later apologized in a Senate hearing um, for what they'd done. So I think that that's really um, the, the, question, the, the way to think of that question. Yes, it, it is terrifying, but it's not the same for everyone in the same way that a white male journalist doesn't face the same harms when he comments on Twitter or Facebook or, or whatever. And do you think people have a right to um, delete their... Right to be forgotten, the right European... Forgotten. I mean, do, do you, is that really practical, given that we we sell ourselves, um, in, in effect, for the price of free services um, to all of, the, all of these platforms? You know, do, do you think it's, it's... Is it something, a nice thing that we talk about as if it can really exist or is it something that only really exists for people who can afford to put lawyers onto it? Well, like everything else, um, it depends where you are in the packing order. Um, so I would say, yes, uh, it is desirable to have a right uh, to be forgotten if you are a battered woman who does not want uh, your ex-spouse to find you via the internet or someone with a traumatic incident that you'd rather not be reminded of every day of your life. But 
there is no community here. So there are 180 different answers to that right uh, in national uh, jurisdictions. And the platforms are quite happy to take profits from operating transnationally. And then they sort of sit on their hands when these difficult questions arise. So I don't have a single answer to that. And I don't think there is one. But then a platform should not be creating the illusion that we're all on it in the same way when they know full well that we're not and that a gay blogger in Iran um, can easily face uh, imprisonment, torture, murder if their identity is uncovered. Um, whereas somebody in the, in the US or the UK may, may just face embarrassment. And I think, I think you're absolutely right that those legal differences happen even you know within the European context. I mean, I remember going to do training with a criminal law firm in Paris and finding myself following a lot of political criminal defamation cases, which coming from the UK, the idea that people, you know, journalists were being prosecuted in France yes. for saying things, even when they were true, that wasn't necessarily a defense uh, because it was about the right to private life of, of people to sort of keep secret that they'd been stealing money from the, from their local school or whatever it was, mm -hmm. um, I, I found absolutely astonishing. And I think those sort of legal and cultural differences, even within the scope of the European Convention on Human Rights, as to where the balance is between private life and freedom of expression, are extremely difficult to navigate in that kind of global online space. And people have always known this. I mean, one of the f uh, famous early cases, I think, um, wasn't it in England where they had a super injunction, an injunction on mention of the injunction? And uh, that, that was broken by Twitter because someone tweeted about the Ryan Giggs case in Scotland. Can you remember this? Yes. There was a libel case over whether or not he was a love rat. And um, you couldn't mention it. And then somebody tweeted it and you could report that they tweeted it. And that sort of, in effect, broke it. So... People have known from the start that when you have a global platform, it's going to make a nonsense of, of national rules. And yet they've pretended not to notice it because it's when it's to their advantage, everyone's in favor when it goes against. And I think also that that's a, a wider point about these platforms. So if you shift ground to a slightly different problem, when uh, Barack Obama in 2012 was running in a tight race, and he used uh, troves of data to push the vote fractionally in thousands of areas that turned out to be the, the crucial ones. Um, everyone with a, a liberal bent said, well, that's fantastic. Look at that. That's very intelligent use of data. But four years later, the Trump people did something that was quite similar. Um, they just pushed a little further. And of course, that seemed like the end of the world to everyone. It was electoral interference. So these platforms cut both ways and, and there's a great danger of um, not noticing when they're in your favor and being um, you know, hypercritical when it goes against you. That goes back to the problem of changing people's minds, doesn't it? It depends on which Exactly, exactly. If you're, they're changing them in a way you like, then it seems intelligent and progressive. <laughs> Um, I think I think that's um, all we've got time for. Is really I, I, I could 
talk forever about these issues. <laughs> um, trying to piece together what on earth all this stuff means and where it's going. Um, but thanks very much, um, Brendan. It's really my, my pleasure. I, I I didn't get to say because I don't know who the scholar is, but I heard probably the most interesting remark about this stuff um, from the editor of Globe Mail in Toronto, and he was talking. We had a conversation of groups of us, and he mentioned an American scholar who had raised this question, which was, "Are social media platforms uh, to the First Amendment?" the equivalent of what an AK-47 is to the Second Amendment. Because the, the scale and the speed of an AK-47 make a nonsense of a law that was written when you took two minutes to load a rifle. And the scale and speed of digital platforms, social platforms, is operating at an absolutely stupefying speed. I mean, a billion hours. How could you be pushing a billion hours of video a day? And I think that's the key question. So to manage things at that scale, you have to have an algorithm. And that algorithm is, is fraught with so many problems that you can't just undo it now. So thank you very much to my co-host, Susie Allegre, our guest, Brendan DeCare and the Office of the OSCE Representative on Freedom of Expression for, of the Media for a grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression project to support the series. If you want to find show notes, go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can also um, find ways of supporting the podcast by giving a few pounds a month. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. So see you next time. My name's Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human podcast. Bye-bye.